we continue our summer sermon series in the book of Romans this morning, this week, we jump to the end of the letter to uncover some of the challenges that the church was facing in Rome and challenges that the Apostle Paul was seeking to address. There were a number of those house church meetings taking place throughout Rome. People from every walk of life were gathered in house churches. So the fact that you're at home worshiping now, that's not a, a new thing. It's actually as old as the Bible itself. Chapter 16 includes the names of people from all walks of life, men and women, wealthy and poor, Jew and Gentile. And the message is that the church must prioritize responsibilities to one another over rights. Like the right to believe as you please and to live as you please. It's a word for today as well as a word for the first century when we need to prioritize our responsibilities over our rights. I invite you to listen for God's word as it comes to us from the book of Romans. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain. And those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. And who are you to pass judgment on the servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. Also, those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God, while those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious God, we come to hear a word from you. So we ask that you would speak to us, open our ears, wipe the sleep from our eyes. And speak to us as only a living God can. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Many of you will remember the old Peanuts cartoon by Charles Schultz. There was one, Lucy, of that cartoon fame. Renowned for her critical spirit and caustic remarks. In one cartoon, Lucy is, or Linus, excuse me, Linus is clutching his security blanket and his thumb is resting securely inside of his mouth but he's troubled by lucy's presence near him and her sideways critical glance finally linus breaks the silence and he asks why are you always so anxious to criticize me 
And Lucy's response is typical. Well, I just think I have a knack for seeing other people's faults. Exasperated, Linus throws up his hands and he says, well, what about your own faults? Without hesitation, Lucy proclaims, I have a knack for overlooking them. Now, why is it that so often the people who are the most critical are also the ones who seem to be blind to their own shortcomings? And religion sometimes intensifies the problem. Critical people become self-righteous people, always putting other people down or finding fault in them as a way of enhancing their own image of their own faithfulness. In other words, they're Lucy's in the church. Those who see the faults in others and blind to their own. Don't get me wrong. There's a place for evaluation. There's a place for healthy criticism. But judgment belongs to the Lord. Christian people must use their freedoms in a way that is constructive, not destructive to Christian community. So the Apostle Paul surveys the tension within the church at Rome. And though there's also a a growing band of persecutors following Paul, Paul knows that the real danger is from within, not from without. It's those who have the power to cause disunity and fracture. These are the ones that really threaten the community of believers, not those who are openly hostile to faith. Rome's the capital of the Roman Empire, the hub of commerce and industry, the center of the nation, a city that attracted a great deal of diversity, and the church there would likely have reflected that diversity. Two separate groups had polarized around certain personal convictions. And then they generalized those convictions into a standard by which everyone in the community was to be measured. In other words, in an attempt to achieve uniformity, the unity of the church was being endangered. One group, let's call them the perfectionists. They refused to eat meat and wine on religious grounds. Due to the presence of idol worship in the culture, most meat sold in the markets would have been killed in some ritualistic fashion to honor one idol or another. But not wanting to pollute themselves, these Christians refused to eat such food. We might call them foodies today. They observe special holidays. They remain vegetarians in order to not unwittingly participate in pagan worship. And they had their convictions and they held them tenaciously. The super disciplined on one side of the issue. They're kind of like fitness nuts. I recently saw a cartoon of the opposite of that. The caption read, yeah, I'm into fitness. I'm into fitness whole pizza in my mouth. On the other side, there were those with little hesitation to eat whatever they felt like. The second group, they ate, they drank what they liked, no concern 
about holy days or the super religious. With clear conscience, they drank deeply of life. They despised their overly cautious brothers and sisters in faith, and they flaunted their freedoms from religious trivia, and they encouraged everyone else to do the same. So the sides were drawn. The self-righteous against the self-reliant. The perfectionists against the freedom lovers. And each party believed they had more claim to Christ than the other. The crucial, the crucial issue that was alienating the Roman church was not the choice of food or the days of observation of the Sabbath. It was the attitude towards those who made a contrary choice. The determination of one's behavior and convictions is one thing. The judgment of those who differed, that's a completely different thing. So Paul inserts himself between the two sides, kind of like a referee breaking up a fight at a hockey game. But taking neither side, he redefines the issues for them and for us. Each side is taken to task for making absolute their own convictions and using those as a weapon against others within the community. He challenges both sides to step out from behind their judges' benches and to embrace one another, differences and all, as equally members of the family of Christ. So then, stop judging one another, he writes. Paul's quick to acknowledge that there's great room for diversity within the church of Christ. He also cautions against self-idolatry. When we set ourselves up as judge and jury of one another, a role that belongs exclusively to the master alone, never to the servants. Some years ago, there was a story in the St. Louis Dispatch about a baseball game. Bill Guthrie was the umpire for the afternoon game, and the visiting team's catcher made it his business to protest every call that Guthrie made. So the umpire endured the catcher's heckling for three innings, and when the catcher started to complain at the beginning of the fourth inning, Guthrie simply stopped him and said, Son, you've been a big help helping me call balls and strikes, and I really appreciate it, but I think I've got the hang of it now. So I'm going to ask you to go to the clubhouse and show them how to take a shower. And with that, he threw the catcher out of the game. You see, too often, we don't want to be in the game. We want to call the game. We prefer to be the evaluator rather than the evaluated but in life, God is the umpire. We may even be able to live in such a way that we can lift the quality of life itself, but we have to learn to let the Lord call the game. Subscriptionism. It's not a term we hear much anymore, but in the 18th century amongst Presbyterians, it was a big issue. 
The Adopting Act of 1729 set standards for what they described as, quote, all essential and necessary articles of the Westminster Confessions and Catechisms. We have learned in the church through history that it is not a good idea to force subscriptionism. It's one of the reasons that the Book of Order in the Presbyterian Church begins with historic principles of church order, and the very first one is God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of human beings which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship, end quote. Each one of us and all of us must answer to God for the way we live our lives. God alone is Lord of the conscience. One must act in accordance with what you believe to be right and true, even if it means you're a contrarian or hold a minority opinion of one. That's precisely what started the Reformation. Martin Luther did precisely that at his trial in 1521 when he responded to the allegations against him. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. It's why we preserve the right of minority opinion to be expressed in the tradition of the church. Now, this isn't so much the idea that you should, quote, let your conscience be your guide. Really, it's much more let God guide your conscience. If you've ever had a chance to email with Reverend Jessica Von Lohr, you've probably noticed under her signature a little expression. In essential things, unity. In uncertain things, liberty. And in all things, charity. I, I like that expression. I think it gets at what Paul's talking about. Sometimes it's that little saying is erroneously attributed to St. Augustine. But it captures something very important about what Paul is describing in Romans 14. I've served on at least three Presbytery engagement teams. For the Presbytery of San Gabriel, helping to negotiate the separation of churches from the Presbytery over disagreements. Congregations felt they could no longer in good conscience stay in the Presbyterian Church USA. Their theology was more conservative. They wanted to join a denomination that was also more conservative. So this issue in the first century is still present in the 21st century. We still have the, right, the self-righteous against the self-reliant, the weak against the strong, the perfectionists against the freedom lovers, And the crucial issue still is not about the choices. It's about the attitude we have towards those who make different choices than we do. An example of that from several decades ago during World War II, 
A young German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was asked to lead the confessing church in Finkenwald in opposition to the German Christian church that had rallied the support behind the Nazi cause, Bonhoeffer lived and studied with his students, learning a great deal about community, communities of faith, especially those under threat from without. In his little volume entitled Life Together, he writes this. The serious Christian set down for the first time in Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life should be and then try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we're fortunate, with ourselves. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. Then he goes on to claim, He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. End quote. In every age, in every century, the church must decide what issues before it require tolerance and what issues require resistance. The goal of unity is not the only goal. Those of us who are ordained officers in the church promise to further the peace, unity, and purity of the church. But I have to confess that I'm more often guilty of being critical of others in faith than tolerating the intolerable. My intolerance really has very little to do with any great issue. The gospel is not at stake. The truth is not being violated. Justice is not being threatened. It's more often my limited perspective and my own personal convictions that I carefully use against others. And if we hold on to our dreams of what we wish the church would be, if we hold those dreams too tightly, we actually may sabotage the real community. So Paul writes, Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of another. On this 4th of July weekend, let me just comment for a minute that I think this same dynamic happens in our country. We're in danger of the self-righteous against the self-reliant. If we're not careful, we may choose uniformity over unity. There's a new kind of subscriptionism Unless you agree with me and my convictions, you're not one of us and you're not with us. If you say the wrong thing or you use the wrong expression or you take an alternative position, you can lose your job. 
You can be shouted down. You can be treated with contempt. It's a dangerous thing in the church. It's a dangerous thing in the country. When we emphasize only our rights and not also our responsibilities. When we treat those who differ from us and our convictions with contempt, we sabotage ourselves as a nation. My friend, Dr. Brian Blunt, who's the president of Union Theological Seminary in Virginia, recently had an interview with the president of a Polish seminary. And in that interview, he was describing for Polish seminarians what's happening in the United States today as a result of the death of George Floyd. And he described it in this way, and I found it really intriguing. He said, this is a 21st century exorcism. We're shouting out the evil from our communities because we cannot tolerate this kind of thing in our midst. America is a nation, but it's also an idea. And what we have witnessed in that video of that officer with his knee on the neck of George Floyd does not square with our idea of America. And there's a place and there's a time for casting out evil. We must, however, be very careful about setting ourselves up as judge and jury and trying people in the court of public opinion. In essential things, unity. In uncertain things, liberty. And in all things, charity. God alone is Lord of the conscience. So let me conclude with a prayer that comes down through the centuries. It's the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. And where there's sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.